Hey, and as I said, we are in the fifth week of our This Is Us series. And if you've been around for a couple of weeks, you know that the This Is Us series is a snapshot into the life of our church here at Trinity, where we are now worshiping in four sites all across the Chicagoland area and having branched out into four different places, we have the opportunity for more voices than just a few to be able to be used by God to share the good news of Jesus. And for us, that's just a great blessing. It's a great blessing to be meeting in the community of Galewood on the west side of Chicago. It's a great blessing to be meeting in two locations in Lyle. And it's a great blessing now as we grow as a family of God here at Burkett in South Naperville. We've been talking about the book of Acts and specifically looking at stories out of the book of Acts where on the weekends we've been looking at one particular story according to a theme and then during small group meetings during the week we've been looking at a companion story out of Acts. And so those two stories together kind of form one consolidated message through each week. And in particular this week the theme has to do with how do we handle conflict in the church? How do we handle when we have disagreements in the family of God? Something that you'll probably see in, new, in the news, in, in some various news outlets around the Chicagoland area, you might find churches celebrating what's called the Protestant Reformation. 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed a very special invitation called the 95 Theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. All Martin Luther was doing at that time was inviting people to get together for a debate. And the debate was on the idea, very centrally, that there is nothing that needs to stand between us and a holy God other than one thing. And that one thing has a name. And his name is Jesus. Martin Luther had a specific issue that he was dealing with. If you look it up on, uh, on Wikipedia or Google it, he was addressing the idea of the church selling indulgences. Those indulgences were designed to move loved ones out of a state of purgatory between heaven and hell after they died into a further state toward heaven. Maybe getting them all the way there if you brought enough money to church and bought an indulgence. Or if you went to an indulgence sale and brought enough money and purchased an indulgence, somebody that you loved who had died might be able to advance out of a middle state of purgatory where they're stuck, suffering, and move on into the bliss of heaven. Well, Martin Luther was using this particular issue to address something deeper in the church that was a need for most people to hear at that time that God loves them and wants them and did everything that was required to win them in heart, body, soul, mind, and strength over to his family. So when Luther put those 95 theses on the castle church door, what he was doing was inviting people in the church into a conversation, in fact, into a debate. But what happened after he put those 95 theses on the door changed the whole world. And the fact that we here today are meeting in worship 
and singing songs in our own language and hearing the scripture read in our own tongue and preaching the word of God in a way that we can understand. And in fact, in a few minutes coming up and receiving the body and blood of Jesus right here in this communion meal. The fact that we have all these freedoms and all these abilities is directly related to that one day when Martin Luther kicked off the debate on October 31st, 1517. But you know what? Martin Luther's struggle with the church was not a new struggle. In fact, the reason that he felt the Holy Spirit moving him toward action and toward leadership is because it wasn't the first time that the good news of Jesus was challenged in the church. What we're going to look at today is the story in Acts chapter 15 where a similar challenge occurred where folks were trying to make people do something before they received the grace of God and became followers of Jesus. Now, if you remember back to what Tony read, you remember that he read Acts chapter 15. I would invite you to open your Bibles if you have them or pull out your smartphone and jump on version and look at Acts chapter 15 with me for just a minute or two. When you get into the story of Acts chapter 15, and we're focusing on verses 1 through 11, the reason that there was a council that was called in Jerusalem, and this was just a few years after Jesus had died and risen from the grave and ascended into heaven, and given his disciples marching orders to take the good news of Jesus out and to share it with the world around them. The problem was, is that some of the disciples of Jesus, some of the church leaders, were requiring new converts who came into the church to be circumcised. Now, if you're a guy, just saying the word circumcision maybe makes you cringe like it does me. What is circumcision? Circumcision is when a blade is applied to a certain special part of a man's body, hopefully at a very, very young age, where he has no memory of it whatsoever, hereever, thereafter, right? Amen and amen. But what was happening in the early church is that because circumcision was a part of the tradition of being in the family of Israel, there were some Jewish Christians who were requiring non-Jewish Christians to become circumcised when they came into the family of God through Jesus Christ. Now, as a 47-year-old man, if I were a Gentile being invited into church one day, and all somebody did was come up to me and welcome me and say, good morning, welcome to Trinity South Naperville, Mike, here's your bulletin. By the way, if you're interested in joining our church, all you need to do is have a quick circumcision done. I would run screaming at the top of my lungs. But you know what was fascinating about this story is that there were people who actually did it. They loved Jesus so much that they agreed to go through with the circumcision as grown men. Ugh, it just makes me cringe and willies all over and up my back and down my spine. They agreed to go through with it because they loved Jesus and wanted to follow him. But the problem was, at the very root, circumcision was not required of them. Somebody felt that it was very important for new non-Jewish Christians to respect and adhere to the traditions that the Jewish Christians came into the faith with. 
And that includes them having been circumcised when they were, by and large, eight days old. So here's kind of what happened in a nutshell. What happened in a nutshell is that folks were telling people in the early church, in order to do, in order to believe in Jesus and follow Jesus, you have to do this first. You have to follow the traditions of the kingdom of Israel. So in other words, unless you are circumcised, then you can't be saved. And these apostles who were combating this, this, this message and pushing back against this message, they knew something very special that they intended to share with all the Gentiles they could get their hands on and not to circumcise, but to simply share the good news of Jesus. There is nothing that is required of someone who comes into the faith other than to trust in Jesus. There's nothing required. Now, if you read on down further into the story, you'll see that the council in Jerusalem got together and in a peaceable way, they came together and they decided to write, write a letter to Gentile Christians, basically warning them to stay away from certain kinds of meat and to observe certain kinds of traditions. But the end message to those Gentile Christians was this. If you will do these things, then it may be well with you. In other words, you will be blessed if you observe these certain ordinances that God has put in place through the church. But nowhere at the end of the message did the church ever come back and say, in order to be a follower of Jesus, you have to do this. Fill in the blank. Now take that message and fast forward 1,500 years. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk who found himself conflicted with God. In fact, if you Google Martin Luther, look him up on Wikipedia, you'll find that he was a really good Augustinian monk. Matter of fact, he was so good that he was really good at whipping himself into submission. When he was tempted in the flesh, he would whip himself. At night, he would whip himself. In the middle of the night, as a part of his order, he would whip himself to try to control his flesh. He would put pain on his flesh so that his flesh would not take him out of his faith in God. But he began to be troubled about the practice of the indulgences in the church. He began to be troubled about the idea that the church had control over the salvation of a person. He began to be troubled with the idea that anytime somebody says to a parishioner, you have to do this in order to be saved, uh, he had trouble with the idea that a boundary was placed between that person and God and that something with their performance had to be done, had to be accomplished in order for them to come into God's favor and to receive faith in Jesus Christ. And so Luther didn't go in all full guns a-blazing into the church and say, I'm going to start a new church and we're going to call it after me. He didn't do that at all. What he did is he very respectfully, as was the custom of the day for academics, he very respectfully asked the church to start a debate. But as what happens even to this day, at times when church leaders or leaders of large organizations 
feel like their leadership is threatened, they fought back. Instead of engaging in civil dialogue, in civil debate with Martin Luther, which is what he attempted, the church took him through a four-year process that basically made him an outlaw. Not even just an outlaw in the church and a heretic, but an outlaw in the civil realm, where Luther had to run for his life. And the last thing Martin Luther wanted 500 years ago this week, the last thing Martin Luther wanted was to create a church that was named after him. In fact, he hated that idea, and he wrote against it. Basically, his words were, don't name a church after a man. The church is about Jesus. And so in Martin Luther's time, when he was starting what would become called the Protestant Reformation, he was fighting this idea that unless you pay, unless you perform, unless you give, then you can't be saved. Unless you do this, fill in the blank, you can't be saved. And he fought about this idea, fought that idea until his dying breath. He wrote about it. He taught about it while he was on the run, while he was in hiding. And from that conviction, from God's use of that lowly monk who became a great leader, God changed the whole world through an ordinary guy who had some brains but was scared to death for his soul. God brought the good news of Jesus that one must not pay, one must not perform, one must not cut one's flesh to become a member of the family of God. One only need to do the work of God, which the scripture says is what? To believe in the one he has sent. And 500 years later, we sit here today and worship together, celebrating the word based on what God has done through average everyday people, just like you and me. This is a picture of the printed copy of the 95 Theses that made itself at, made its way out into the community. Did you know the printing press was getting warmed up, fired up, and started during this time in, in history? Martin Luther came along at just the right time in history when the printing press was being invented and widely used. And one of the first major pieces of literature that was widely circulated among the average person was the document of the 95 Theses, where the average person began to become aware of what the church was doing. And out of that communication, which would have kind of like been the Twitter of their time, out of that communication came a movement, a movement of people who believed that all they needed to be saved was one thing, and that one thing has a name. What's his name? Jesus. He's the only one we need to be saved. No matter who we've been in the past before, no matter what we've said before, no matter what we've done before, no matter how we've acted towards others before, no matter who we've hurt before, no matter how badly we have hurt before, or even how badly we may hurt now, all we need is one thing for salvation. And that thing has a name, and his name is Jesus. This is a picture of Joseph Fiennes, 
playing Martin Luther in a 2003 movie called Luther. I would encourage you to watch it whenever Amazon and Netflix decide to open it up and release it to the people again. Our family tried to watch it last night and we found that the movie was blacked out, quote unquote, for our region. Turns out it was for the entire United States, probably because it was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. But when you get a chance to watch it, watch it. Watch the struggle Luther goes through as he's struggling with this idea, what must I do to be saved? And he will discover through the scriptures and share with the average common person the idea that everyone is saved for one reason and one reason only, and that is to share in the glory of God. Now let me ask you a question. When's the last time you were in a disagreement with somebody you love? Maybe it was an hour ago. Maybe it was yesterday. Maybe it was sometime this week. My question for you is this. How did you handle the conflict when you were in trouble with somebody and in conflict and having a disagreement? Did you get into an argument? If so, how did it work out? Or did you have a civil discussion? And if so, how did that work out? Well, I'm going to leave you with a couple of ideas that we can learn from the Jerusalem Council and perhaps even from Martin Luther in his early life as he was reaching out to his fellow church members and inviting them to consider change. The way we deal with conflict in the church is by understanding the difference between focusing on issues and focusing on accusations. One of the things Martin Luther failed at and apologized for in front of one of the gatherings of his church body was picking out and accusing people by name, being too hard on them. And if you read history, specifically Martin Luther's works, you will see various instances of him calling out people and condemning them for one reason or another. He regretted this at one point of his life and spoke about it. The reason being is because when we find ourselves in conflict, the way to solve that conflict doesn't come by engaging in accusation, but it comes by engaging in focusing on issues. And so for us as a church, we learn about this from the Jerusalem Council, and we learn about this from Martin Luther's life, and we take a few cues from the idea that God calls us to engage in issues, not in accusations. Think about it this way. If you are in a disagreement, in an argument with somebody, you have a choice. You can either square up against that person where there's one of you here and one of you here, and you engage in conversation that points the finger one at each other. That's where you are in conflict. You are accusing the other person of being something or doing something. You're calling that person a name. You're calling that person a behavior that they're exhibiting. But you're calling, you're calling that person that name in such a way as to point a finger at them and accuse them of something. That never gets anybody anywhere. And if you go home and try it today, you will find that it's true. If you engage in an argument and accuse each other and point the finger, what you will not do 
is you will not end up solving the issue. Here is what we are called to do in the church. We are called to identify issues and we are called to work together, you and me, to side together in the grace of Jesus Christ together and attack the issue. If you and I get into a fight and attack each other, what doesn't get solved? The issue. We get attacked, but the issue doesn't. We are called to bind together and attack issues together. For example, whether or not somebody needs to be circumcised to be saved. For example, whether or not somebody needs to buy an indulgence for their grandmother to make it out of purgatory. Those are issues to be solved. In fact, even today, we have similar issues in the church. Whether or not people should allow guitars in worship services. Whether or not people should continue to use pipe organs. Whether or not pastors should continue to be called pastor. Whether or not people should wear robes and swing incense. Whether or not people should come in shorts and t-shirts. Whether or not you could worship on a beach. Whether or not there should be small group ministry. Whether or not we should receive offerings in one way or another. Whether or not we should gather in our homes or not. There are all kinds of issues. We are called to bind together as a family to work together on these issues. There are times when we will disagree in part company. And that even happens to the early church leaders. But by and large, we lead with the idea that God has called us to be at one with each other in unity, one faith, one life, one baptism. This is what our early church leaders, those who were really leading the church, would embrace. So the idea becomes this. The idea becomes, no matter where we are in life, no matter how lonely we are, no matter what we're facing, no matter how much guilt we feel. And if you're listening by podcast, you're looking at an image of Guilty Puppy. Have you seen Guilty Puppy before? You can Google Guilty Puppy. Basically, he just looks like he's done something really, really wrong. How many of us walk around in life spiritually like Guilty Puppy? Looking, feeling, harboring guilt on the inside. You know what? The truth still holds. The truth still holds 500 years after the Reformation, 2,000 years after the Council in Jerusalem. The idea still holds. You only need one thing to be saved. There's no fill in the blank because there's no choice. It's only Jesus. It's ever only Jesus. And in fact, we understand in the church that we are judged by no other rule than the rule of the name of Jesus. We trust in Jesus and God looks at us and sees who? Sees Jesus. He looks to the cross, sees his son there instead of me. And now he looks at me and sees his son here instead of me. He loves me. And He guards my heart by giving me a faith that I can live in 
And it's a faith. It's all about one thing. And that one thing has a name. What's his name? His name is Jesus, isn't it? So as we close today and as we get ready to pray and share the prayers of the church and enter into a time of communion, remember this now and always. There is only one name under heaven by which you are saved. There's only one name. And it's not yours. It's not something you need to do. It's been done for you. That name is what? The name is Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us a faith that we can handle. Thank you for giving us a faith that we can live in and experience. Thank you for giving us the ability to claim the name of Jesus and to live under the umbrella of his grace and love. Thank you that we enter into times of conflict. We can remember that we're both saved by the same name. Both sides are saved by the same name. And we can work together to remember the unity to which we are called. God, thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you for the remembrance of the name of Jesus, the remembrance of his body and his blood in communion. Thank you for the remembrance of Jesus in the community as we pray. It's in that light and, and with that idea that we pray today. Confessing before you, we need you. In your name, amen and amen.